The views and opinions expressed in the following program do not reflect the views or opinions of HEC or this station. This is HEC Media. Welcome to Talking With Authors, a program dedicated to speaking with some of the best-selling authors around, covering many different genres. I'm your podcast host, Rod Milam, for HEC Media. With the help of independent bookstore Left Bank Books and the St. Louis County Library, we're able to sit down with amazing writers and thought leaders to discuss their work, their inspiration, and what makes them special. By the way, you can also watch video versions of most of these interviews by going to hecmedia.org. Now today, our author is journalist and writer Sarah Kenzior. She sat down with us for a discussion in February of 2018 at one of her alma maters, Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. Sarah is a Connecticut-born, St. Louis-based international journalist whose education in anthropology and career as a reporter in Europe, Russia, and the U.S. led her to publish the book, The View from Flyover Country, Dispatches from the Forgotten America. Now, this book is a collection of essays that she wrote for the network Al Jazeera English between 2012 and 2014, and it covers the increasingly difficult state of the lives and careers of American citizens from the perspective of people who don't live on the east and west coasts of the country. Our conversation will cover these topics that she says were reported on journalistically, but Ms. Kenziora is also well known to write online and speak on television about a wide range of subjects while notably giving her studied opinion on the matters. What happened with Trump is people realized how much of our government's stability rests on norms and not just laws. And Trump does abuse the law. You know, a lot of his executive orders have been unconstitutional. I think the Constitution is only as good as the people who enforce it. You know, and the same is true of checks and balances. Unfortunately, a lot of our officials aren't good at all. Uh, they're either complicit or you're seeing record numbers of people quitting. The U.S. presidency, the start of the Black Lives Matter movement, the current state of academia, and more is what we'll hear about from our guest, journalist, cultural commentator, and writer, Sarah Kenzier, on Talking with Authors from HEC Media and HEC Books. Here's our host this time, Victoria Babu. We are on the campus of Washington University, your alma mater, Sarah Kenzier. We're so glad to have you here. In fact, you're an anthropology major here at WashU. How did your passion for global issues develop from there, or did it? I guess it started at that point. Um, well, that was where I got my PhD. Um, I got my PhD in anthropology from here. Um, before that, I had studied history, um, focusing on authoritarian states, especially authoritarian states um, in the former Soviet Union. And so when I started here um, in 2006, I already had that interest in mind. Um, you know, I planned to pursue that for my dissertation topic. And I ended up writing on how um, dictatorships uh, use the internet and how those oppose them also use the internet and the different issues of propaganda and trust and activism that come into play. Uh, at the time, I thought, you know, this is a topic that's very relevant uh, to countries like Uzbekistan, which is the main country I studied. And unfortunately, I've had to transfer those skills uh, into studying the United States under Donald Trump. Yeah, I do want to talk about that. And so your book, The View from Flyover Country, Dispatches from the Forgotten America, it is a collection of your essays that you wrote about about the Midwest for Al Jazeera, and that was from 2012 to 2014. What did you want the world to know about our part of the world? Some of the essays are directly about the Midwest, directly about uh, St. Louis in particular, but generally it's about the decline of U.S. institutions and trust um, you know, throughout the country and also to some extent internationally. I think that because I live here, um, I live in St. Louis, which in my mind never recovered uh, from the Great Recession, 
uh, it's sort of like we get all the bad stuff first. And so we tend to notice things kind of falling apart um, before other parts of the country do. And when you're living somewhere like New York or DC, where things are very expensive, um, but they're also thriving, where there's all these centers of power, and you know, versus living in a place like St. Louis, um, you know, whose glory days, if you want to define them as that, are in the past, um, you know, you have a different perspective. And I think that the rest of the country, as time went on, um, and as things continued to decline, became more and more Saint, like St. Louis. And so, you know, in that sense, the essays ended up being something a little ahead of its time. They gained uh, more popularity after Trump won the election. That's when people on the coast seemed to be like, oh, okay, I get what she's been saying for all these years. So. Well, you talk about the coast, and you talk about flyover country. Explain to those who don't maybe understand what that means. Yeah, I mean, that's a term that, you know, since I moved here and before here, you know, I moved here, I, I was in Indiana, uh, I've heard a lot used in a very derogatory fashion uh, to describe, you know, I guess I could say our part of the country. And, you know, what I don't like about saying our part is that what they mean is basically everything from like New York to LA if you're flying over in a plane, which is obviously a ton of different states and different cities and different people and, you know, not a monolith. Um, but it's dismissed that way. It's kind of overlooked that way. You see that now uh, with the coverage of Trump, you know, where they'll call it Trump country and they assume everybody voted for him, everybody has the same idea is of the same race, the same religion, you know, all these sorts of stereotypes. And so what they don't like, um, you know, what I've noticed in working for the media, being part of the media, is to have a view from this place, for people from here to speak out. Um, you know, I think you really saw that in Ferguson, uh, where they really tried, the national media tried to portray it as this kind of riot that they didn't understand, instead of really talking to folks who've lived here, who'd been experiencing uh, racism in, in brutal conditions, or our labor strikes, or the election, or a variety of issues. They want to parachute in and parachute out. Um, and I try to fill in that gap um, and bring what I can you know, myself. And I like seeing authors in other regions uh, that tend to be overlooked doing that as well in the South and in the Midwest. You're an Al Jazeera columnist. I was. And, well, you were. And an anthropologist yes. uh, by study. Um, not a common job title anywhere, let alone here in the Midwest. <laughs> so you kind of said somewhat about the perspective of living in St. Louis. Um, has it helped you with these essays, too, uh, in terms of talking about social media, politics, economics, all these things that you do touch on? And then is, it, is there one thing that happens in the world that gives you the idea to write about? Or is it just everyday life? Um, well, when I was working for Al Jazeera, I was responding uh, to the topics at hand, and you can see that um, throughout the book. And what kind of terrifies me is that these topics held up really well. Mm -hmm. You know, economic decline, uh, opportunities being hoarded by elites, uh, a feeling of paranoia and distress leading to conspiracy theories being spread in society. Those are all the sorts of stuff, um, you know, that I touched on and that, you know, I still tend to do now. Um, you know, unfortunately, we live in this crazy news cycle where you're kind of forced to respond to current events. You know, you're kind of rolling along, covering all the Nazi rallies, and then there's the threat of nuclear war, and you're like, well, yeah, the Trump era, so, yeah. So you mentioned earlier about receiving your PhD from here at Washington University, um, studying the authoritarian regimes, and one of them was um, Uzbekistan, which is a former Soviet Republic, but you're now banned from that country. Tell us what you learned, what was going on there, and how it led you to write about issues here in the United States. How did that even come to be? 
I got interested in Uzbekistan and the, the other former Soviet republics of Central Asia um, at my first job, which is at the New York Daily News, uh, because it was 9-11 and we had the war in Afghanistan. We had all these bases in the surrounding countries and those countries really weren't being covered much at all. And so I kind of wanted, you know, as a journalist to fill in those gaps and, and write about Central Asia. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to do this, I want to do it right. I want to learn the languages. So I went to Indiana University and got an MA and I learned how to speak Uzbek. Um, and I was all set to go to Uzbekistan when in in uh, May 2005, the government fired on a protest of you know t about 10,000 people and murdered uh, 700 protesters. And then they blamed that protest on a group they called Acromia, which I managed to prove did not exist. It was invented by Uzbek state propagandists. And so I wrote a paper about that. It was published in a peer-reviewed journal. Uh, the Uzbek government was very unhappy about this, and I was you know not allowed to go in the country. And that actually it was true for a lot of Westerners who were even mildly critical of Uzbekistan. They were kicking everybody out, so I wasn't really unique um, in that respect, but it did uh, change the subject of, of my dissertation and of my work. And that's how it ended up being more about the United Yeah, about States. the internet and about you yeah. know what, what happened with that massacre called the Andijan Massacre is that all of the kind of you know, intellectuals and journalists and political opposition of Uzbekistan left. They went to all these different countries, but this was when blogs were kind of popping up, mm -hmm. and so they were finally able to communicate with each other over the internet and kind of plan an opposition strategy. And so what I looked at was that process, like could this happen? Could they actually be a threat um, to this dictator who'd always been their dictator? Um, online, and you know what I found is that the internet really exacerbates distrust, um, anonymity, trolling. You know all these issues we're dealing with right now in the U.S. Um, I was studying in terms of Uzbekistan back then, and you know I think it's true uh, the world over. I don't think anyone's immune from that. You talk about Twitter in your book and the power that it has. Explain how you look at Twitter and uh, how it can help people who may not have a voice. Yeah, I mean, my, my perspective's changed a bit um, since I originally wrote this, because Twitter's changed. You know, it's been weaponized. It's been weaponized by foreign actors. It's been weaponized by uh, neo-Nazis. It's been weaponized by bots. You know, all these kind of things we read about now at Cambridge Analytica. Those hadn't happened yet. What was interesting at the time I was writing, um, around, you know, between 2012 and 2014, it was after uh, the Arab Spring. Um, it was after the internet had proven, you know, a fairly important part of those revolutions, and everyone was kind of looking at it that way. And when people in foreign countries um, criticized their government and stood up you know, to their government online, they are often cheered on by Western commoners. But, and this kind of foreshadowed um, the Ferguson uprising in Black Lives Matter, when black Americans uh, would do the same thing, would talk about systemic racism, um, would criticize government policies, they would be, you know, often libeled or slandered uh, by Western media outlets, even though they're just expressing their opinion. And that goes for Latino activists, it goes for anybody who's kind of, you know, marginalized um, and put upon, you know, in the US. And I just, I noticed that discrepancy see. Um, I don't see a difference between the two groups. I think when you're fighting for your freedom, you're fighting for your freedom. And so I, w I was kind of put off by the way they were portrayed. Is it a challenge to make sense of certain global issues in that medium, with that medium? It's in many ways a really terrible site. <laughs> they need to reform it badly because of the harassment and the trolls and all this kind of stuff. It's also a very powerful site. You know, I wouldn't have a platform, I wouldn't have a career, and I wouldn't have some friends, you know, that I have if it weren't for Twitter. Um, I think it's a very good and vital resource for sharing information if you have media literacy, if you're able to kind of discern fact from fiction, and that comes often from experience. And I do worry about the effect of Twitter and other social media 
media networks on young people um, who haven't developed those skills. And in a world where you know, you're getting bombarded with lies and conspiracy theories and propaganda, and notably, our government puts them out. Trump has tweeted things like that. And so the authority of information is really in question um, when people don't seem to have a grasp on the truth, when people, in fact, propagate uh, alternative facts, as they like to call them. You mentioned Ferguson. You were actually there. Yeah, right? yeah. During the, the writing in that time. You talk about living in a biracial neighborhood. Are you optimistic that America can overcome racism? Uh, no. I mean, I think we should all try. I think the obligation goes more on white people um, because we're the people who, you know, have the privilege and the leverage uh, in this situation. You know, I think that um, Ferguson started out as a vigil. You know, Ferguson started out as, as people mourning for somebody who'd been killed and his body left in the street. And from there, it turned into a movement. Um, and I think a lot of times people think, you know, there's some sort of driving ideology and there is that, but there's just, you know, there's an emotional component um, that I wish people would consider. I wish people, white people, would try to put themselves, you know, in the shoes of, you know, black parents trying to raise kids when police can shoot their children and just walk away and just get away with it. You know, even if they didn't shoot with malicious intent, you know, it still happened. Somebody still died. And so until we kind of get very honest about that um, and acknowledge these structural inequalities, I don't know where we can go. You know, I do think in some sense we've, we've made some progress. I think people are more aware, um, you know, of systemic inequalities that you could have all the money in the world, but if you're black, you could still get profiled on the street, get profiled in the mall. I do think people understand that. I think the younger generation actually is better with that. Uh, I see more open-mindedness among kids and teenagers. So like, if, if I have hope for the future, um, it's with them. Uh, what do you say to, the, to that next generation? Um, what can they do? Well, the main thing is you know, tell the truth. Uh, be honest, even if everyone around you is lying, even if you feel like the stakes are high. Um, and I think, you know, think of others, be helpful, do the right thing, you know, because it's the right thing to do. I think when laws are, are fading, when norms have been shattered, uh, you have to turn to your moral conscience. And that means, you know, being good to other people, looking out for the most vulnerable people and standing up for them. And I do see young people uh, doing that. I think a lot of times younger people see things uh, more clearly these days because we, you know, older folks have grown up with a set of expectations and it's been hard for many people to adjust to the fact that this is really happening, that there are serious violations of the Constitution, that our system of checks and balances isn't holding. Younger people see this for what it is, and so that's good. I mean, hang on to that. Hang on to that clarity of mind, uh, no matter what people throw at you. Let's talk about our justice system. Do you believe that reform um, in our justice system in St. Louis City and the county is on the way to justice for all? So I'm pretty frustrated by the lack of meaningful reform since Ferguson. You know, as we know, St. Louis has 90 municipalities. And so you can try to solve a problem in Ferguson and you're left with 89 versions of the same situation. And I think there's more awareness of the situation, of things like um, shakedowns by police on, you know, uh, traffic tickets, for example, to fund departments. You still have underfunded departments. You still have widespread poverty. You still have an unequal school system. You still have all these problems. And I think there are also local activists. I mean, that's the good thing about St. 
St. Louis is, you know, people work very hard, often with very little resources um, for change, and they continue to work, even though the conditions are very tough. You know, I know a lot of people have PTSD from fighting all of these battles, but they care. Um, and so I think we actually have a lot of really good people here, and we just need, uh, you know, more, more money, more resources, and uh, more people to kind of wake up and realize this isn't a zero-sum situation. If some people's lot improves, it doesn't mean things get taken from you. I, I guess that's what I wish people would understand more than anything. Coming up in a bit, we'll hear more from journalist Sarah Kenzior and from Dr. Kenzior about her thoughts on the state of education and academia in the U.S. today. It's a borderline uh, Ponzi scheme, basically, where, you know, people are working for prestige instead of money, and that prestige does not lead to a payoff, and people struggle to get by. And that's true uh, of people who have the highest level of education possible. Then you see people, you know, struggling who have GEDs as well. That and Sarah Kenzie are reading from her book, The View from Flyover Country, when talking with authors continues from HEC Media. Educate Today offers an ever-growing library of the highest quality video resources, curriculum materials, and interactive programs, all of which are designed to challenge thinking, inspire creativity, and empower learning of students, educators, parents, and lifelong learners. And you can find out more about all these programs by going online to educate.today. That's educate.today. You are also widely uh, credited for being really among the first journalists to predict that Donald Trump would win the presidency, go to the White House. And you explained in your book, and you did this on the television programs that you were guests on, um, how it was missed by the media and uh, by political pundits. Um, how did you reach this conclusion? Oh, well, there are a few things that gave me unfortunate expertise into this. You know, one, as I said, I used to work at the New York Daily News. I understood New York tabloid media, how they portrayed Trump. I understood how Trump worked the media. Um, you know, the media has been in bad financial straits for a long time. Trump was a cash cow. He gave them ratings. He gave them money. They didn't care that he, he launched his campaign saying that Mexicans were murderers and rapists. They didn't care about his bigotry and his hatred. They were going to roll with that and make money, and he knew it. He worked them really well. The other thing, um, you know, I've studied authoritarianism, I've studied demagogues, and I've studied, you know, white racists in the U.S. And with Trump, you kind of get all those things colliding, and it's really up to a system of checks and balances to kind of keep him, um, keep a character like that at bay. You know, we've had people like this in our history for a long time. And then the third thing, honestly, um, around the fall especially, I, I was noticing that the government was not addressing the Russian interference issue. I was really surprised by the way parts of the media were just lying about it. You know, they were saying there's no connection between Trump and Russia. And I'm like, what's going on? And I, of course, now we have Mueller, who is trying to figure out what exactly is going on. Uh, we still don't know the full official story, but I became very worried that that may tip the election. I never thought he'd sweep, but I thought it would be close. Um, and I thought he had a serious shot and that nobody should treat it like a joke. Right. And you mentioned this on the air with Al Jazeera. And oh, I mentioned it every boss. opportunity I got because I was feeling really panicked. Um, what you was know, the reaction back then when you, during that time? People thought I was crazy. They thought I was crazy to even think that he had a chance of winning, um, in part because of the polls, in part because I think people had greater faith in American institutions than in American people. I mean, the other thing is, you know, I was, I was reporting from here, so I would go to the Trump rallies, and I would also go to towns um, that had a lot of signs for Trump, and, you know, a lot of people were going to vote for him. And so I kept meeting 
people who were going to vote for Trump. And often they weren't all that enthusiastic. They're kind of like, I hate both of them, but I always vote Republican, or I'm pro-life, or I just want the economy to get better. So I guess I'll, I'll go for it. I think that because the media is really conglomerated in these very liberal cities on the coast, they didn't meet anyone just in ordinary, regular life. They only met these kind of you know people at the rallies who were just wild and over the top and made it almost seem like a spectacle. But this was a serious thing, and a lot of people really bought into you know his his lies and I do feel sorry for them I feel sorry for anybody you know who's having trouble paying their bills but I think that a lot of people felt like okay someone finally gets it someone's finally saying that things are bad that times are tough and that we need help and that he's offering to help us so hey you know as Trump famously said what do you have to lose and well do you fear that we Midwesterners um, will be so discouraged that we will accept the status quo or have we lost our hope for the quote, moral arc to lean toward justice. I think that moral arc needs to be pushed. Um, I think people realize that. You know, I think that you know you get a variety of opinions here. You find people who who do still really like Trump. You find some supporters who disillusion. You find a, you know a bunch of people, especially saying loser, never liked him. We're never um, for him, and we're out have been out protesting him since he got into office. So you find all that. You know, one thing I find when I talk to um, I want to separate like Trump fans from Trump voters. People voted for him, feeling a little ambivalent. They're not happy, you know, because he didn't fulfill any of the you know the promises. They're not necessarily going to go talk to the media about it because they hate the media, and I honestly can't blame them a lot of the times because the media shows no interest in them except for on you know a hurricane or Ferguson or an election. Otherwise, you know they they know when they're being condescended to. They're not stupid. Uh, but I have seen some frustration. Um, I'm more, uh, I'm much more upset with our officials uh, than I am with ordinary people. Um, I think that Congress has really let us down, particularly the GOP. I think the judiciary uh, is under a lot of strain. Um, I think Trump is packing the courts with conservative judges that are just going to do his bidding. And all of that worries me more for the future than what citizens are doing. Because I actually think citizens are really on the ball. You know, they're, they're fighting, they're standing up for each other, they're doing a good job. Are you optimistic that the Constitution can withstand this administration? And I will quantify this with, under his predecessor, there were some liberties taken. So that kind of led the way for Trump, actually, or whomever was going to follow. Right. But what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I think that's true. And I think that, that what happened with Trump is people realized how much of our government stability rests on norms and not just laws. And Trump does abuse the law. You know, a lot of his executive orders have been unconstitutional. But the ability to send out executive orders and the ability to have executive control, uh, you know, was strengthened under Obama. And I think that people didn't see that as a potential danger for a demagogue or a sort of proto-authoritarian leader because they just didn't envision that kind of thing happening in America. You know, we've always been a democracy. I don't think that they saw somebody like him coming. I think, you know, the Constitution is only as good as the people who enforce it, you know, and the same is true of checks and balances. Unfortunately, a lot of our officials aren't good at all. Uh, they're either complicit or you're seeing record numbers of people quitting. They just want out of this. They feel like it's very corrupt um, and they want out. And that leaves things in a constantly uh, chaotic state. Uh, as well as a state that's advantageous for some of Trump's lackeys who are at heart kleptocrats. They just want to make money. They're using the White House like an ATM, uh, and they don't care about what citizens are going through. But how do you handle the opposing views? And I'm sure you've had many people that have that point-counterpoint. 
yeah, I mean, I'm fine if people disagree with me. You know, if they come into the debate with facts and with their own prerogative and their own opinion, I'm totally up for having a, you know, a good faith debate. What I don't like is just, you know, slander, lies, trying to argue about a completely different topic, like that kind of nonsense, which of course you see all over the internet. But I'm usually happy, you know, to meet somebody who has a different opinion from me because, I mean, how else do you learn about the world? How else do you learn about what other people are thinking? And I don't think, it would be really creepy to me if everyone agreed with me. That's challenging. Does it help you come up with another thought process? Yeah, yeah, sometimes it is. If the person's an intelligent person and they're making a good argument, yeah, I mean, I take that seriously. I think that's good. You know, it freaks me out when everybody's in agreement. That's what a fascist state is like. True. Because they're telling you how you're going to think and Yeah, or there's just out. an obligation right. for everybody to kind of reiterate the same views because they feel afraid to express themselves. And, you know, the best thing is for people to, to be able to express freely what they're thinking. You have your Ph.D., from here, from Washington University, yet you write very critically of the academic world. Uh, I found it very enlightening because I didn't know enough about it to understand that you've written a paper, but myself and maybe others in the world may never see the works right. that you do, that folks do in uh, academ academia. Why is that? And then when you go out into the world, they're not paying you. Right. Oh, yeah. You talk I mean, about that with the economy in general, but it, it's certainly it's academia. Yeah, it's a borderline uh, Ponzi scheme, basically, where, you know, people are working for prestige instead of money, and that prestige does not lead to a payoff, and people struggle to get by. And that's through, true uh, of people who have the highest level of education possible, you know, have a PhD. And then you see people, you know, struggling who have GEDs as well. Like, I feel like there's kind of a systematic exploitation problem. But yeah, in terms of academic papers, um, you know, the way it works is when you publish in an academic journal, uh, it allegedly is supposed to count big on the job market. I haven't really found that to be the case, but it's then paywalled, um, and then that journal will charge people an incredible amount of money to read it, like something like you know twenty five dollars or something, which you know like a subscription to the to the Washington Post is like a buck. So you're sort of like, yeah, you know, what are the odds that people are going to actually pay up and, and download this thing? And so why are they doing it? Uh, and they do it to put up that barrier. Uh, it, it's very elitist. It's not about the dissemination of knowledge. It's about the hoarding of knowledge and sort of sending out signals to different institutions like this person's a serious scholar and all that. I mean, that to me, I had no interest in that. Like, I really wanted to inform the general public with my work. I'm like, what's the point? Like, if people can't read it, what's the point of it? You know, so I found, I found that to be really frustrating. But you had the avenue of the internet and uh, Right, media. yeah. And I think that things have changed a bit since I wrote those essays. Um, I think a lot of social scientists in particular realize how valuable their expertise is now. You know, you're seeing a lot of best-selling books by professors um, and others who've studied things like, um, you know, how authoritarian states form, how democracies die, all these unfortunate topics. And I think that the public um, maybe has some greater appreciation for that. And I think some of it is people need to speak in, like, normal English without any jargon, without all this academic nonsense. Because nobody cares about this academic, you know, inter-academic debates. And so I think people have realized that, and they realize that, you know, they've got something to offer, and, and the response has been good. So I do think there's been positive change. Tell me about your process when you write and organizing these essays, and particularly for this book. How do you go from them standing alone to making it flow in the book? Was that a challenging process? It was easy? like completely accidental because I never set out to write a book. Like I wrote all these essays individually, you know, as in response to current events, when I was working for Al Jazeera, 
Uh, once I left, I had a lot of demand from my readers saying, you know, I really like your work. Is there a place we can get it where it's all in one place? I didn't think that a book publisher would want like a bunch of things that had already been published online. So I self-published this in 2015. And to my surprise, uh, it was a big bestseller. It was popular when it first came out. It got extremely popular after the election. And then there's a demand for a print version with new material, um, you know, which is what this is. But you know, I arranged them. I tried to kind of make them flow. I tried to, to divide them by topic. I'm glad, <laughs> hopefully, you think it does. Um, but you know, uh, there are some common themes. There are themes of you know, corruption, uh, injustice, hypocrisy, all kinds of fun stuff that uh, unfortunately bind these uh, themes together. Is writing a catharsis for you? Is it cathartic at all? Um, uh, and I guess a form of activism? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it is cathartic. You know, I like to write. You know, I just stylistically, I get some satisfaction out of it. I like, you know, sharing my work with readers. I like being able to explore a topic that's underexplored, um, things that aren't necessarily getting in the news. I feel some satisfaction out of that. You know, as for the, like, is it activism? That's a debate a lot of people are having now. I feel like they're, you know, my stuff's labeled opinion when it's opinion. And when I write a feature story, I leave myself out of it. I usually take a kind of ethnographic approach and remove myself um, from the situation entirely. But, you know, um, it becomes activism in this kind of political climate, you know, even inadvertently. It's not like I'm setting out with some activist agenda, but when you live in a state that doesn't value the truth, that's often trying to suppress the truth, then telling the truth uh, can be seen as a radical act. And I don't think of myself as a radical person, but that's, you know, that's how I'm characterized sometimes. And I think it's more a reflection of the political climate we live in. International journalist, anthropologist, cultural commentator, and author Sarah Kenzior. Now to close out our podcast, here's Sarah reading excerpts from her book, The View from Flyover Country. Americans will advocate for tolerance and peace. This is a noble sentiment, but what the U.S. needs is a cold, hard look at social structure. We need to examine and eliminate barriers to opportunity, some of which are racially biased in an overt way, but many of which are downplayed because they're considered ambiguous social issues, such as decaying public schools, low-wage labor, and unemployment, which affect African Americans at disproportionate rates. Americans should not fear riots. They should fear apathy. They should fear acquiescence. They should not fear each other, but it's understandable now that they do. Freedom of speech is protected by law, but guided by emotion. We should not mistake legal sanction for personal approval, but we should also not mistake personal disapproval for a rejection of free speech. In free societies, people have the right to say hateful things, and those offended have the right to oppose and condemn them. That's number one best-selling author Sarah Kenzior reading from her book, The View from Flyover Country, Dispatches from the Forgotten America from Flatiron Books. All of that from our interview with her in February of 2018 on the campus of Washington University. If you love theater, musicals, and operas, and you'd like to hear reviews of the more than 150 St. Louis area productions that HEC Media covers each year, make sure you subscribe to Two on the Isle, the podcast. Every two weeks, you'll get to hear the well-crafted takes on all sorts of stage performances by 25-year-plus reviewers, Bob Wilcox and Jerry Kowarski. And you'll get a lesson on how each of the works, old and new, came to be and how they fit in with the stage performances you love. Again, for great theater reviews in St. Louis, subscribe to Two on the Isle, the podcast. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Talking with Authors. Remember, you can watch video versions of most of these interviews online by going to hecmedia.org. 
Also, be sure to follow us on social media. Just search for Talking With Authors on all social media platforms. And if you have not done so yet, please rate and review this program wherever you get your podcasts. The host and producer of the video version of this program was Victoria Babu. Supervising producer was Julie Winkle. Photography by Pete Foggy and Jeff White. Editing and graphics were by Carrie Marks. Production support by Jane Ballou and Christina Chastain. And HEC Media Executive Director is Dennis Riggs. The Talking With Authors podcast executive producer is Christina Chastain. Podcast editors were Ben Smith and Rod Milam. And I'm Rod Milam, your podcast producer and host. Special thanks to Maryville University and St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. This is HEC Media.